Hello, good evening. Um, I'm Megan Butelman, if I haven't met you, and I am really thrilled to be here tonight preaching on a topic that's near and or that's become near and dear to my heart. The more I've looked into this, the more I've become passionate about it. I'm going to start you off a little rough tonight. <laughs> I have a list of items that I want you to look at because these all have something in common. Sex, <laughs> starting great. Shopping, alcohol, freedom, food, hobbies, self-care, being alone, being with people. And here's what I see in common with these things. These things are all good. They're all good things with restraint, right? Food nourishes the body. It is the best way I know to celebrate. It brings community around the table. It's delicious. There's nothing better than a well-crafted meal. <laughs> but food hoarded, food mindlessly devoured, turns into too much of a good thing. And the result is discomfort, poor health, shame, Shopping. Shopping is the way that we, we fill our houses with beautiful things or our closets with beautiful things. Brings organization, peace, and beauty, right? But it can turn into mindless consumer, consumerism as it feeds on, on our envy. And it can leave us never satisfied, always wanted mo wanting more with maxed out credit cards. Sex, it's an expression of love, giving and receiving and delighting, enjoying, excitement, practice and trust, or it can sever the connection between body and spirit. It can be disconnected it can be disassociated, it can be selfish or violent, dehumanizing and shaming. And all that can happen within a marriage, not just without. This afternoon, we're gonna, we've come to our final fruit of the Spirit, the ninth fruit of the Spirit. And those of you who've been here each week, I bet you can recite them from memory. <laughs> Should we give it a try? No? Okay, we put it up. <laughs> Read it with me though, okay? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Our final fruit of the Spirit, self-control, Self-control, I think we tend to think of it as just abstaining from or controlling ourselves from doing sin. But as I demonstrated with that list, I hope it, it, it's also, it also keeps us from turning good things into bad things. 
And self-control encompasses so much, doesn't it? Like, we are to be self-controlled in the midst of the cultural messages all over the place telling us to buy, to eat, to indulge, to be sexually fulfilled, no matter the cost, to speak whatever's on our mind. We're to be self-controlled in these bodies that are prone to addiction. We're prone to unhealthy coping mechanisms, bad habits. Be self-controlled. There's this, this tendency to make it a dangerous, moralistic message. Some of us, some, some of you, are naturally self-disciplined, but for those of us who are not, there's like a Nike-esque message of just do it that can result in so much shame, right? Just stick to a diet. Just put away your phone. Just turn off your computer. Put down that drink. Just hold your tongue. Just get up when your alarm goes off. <laughs> that last one is about to get real, real for me, you guys. Tomorrow, we start school. <laughs> and by we, I mean I homeschool my children, and they start school tomorrow, but I'm also in school, and I start tomorrow, and I'm going to have to get up at 5.30 in order to get our day going. I need some self-control. <laughs> but if I can get real personal for a second, I said this was a, a very personal message tonight. Um, I need self-control for other reasons, too. This, is, this, this season, this late summer, early fall season, is a really difficult one for me. A lot of hard things have happened historically in this season. And there's something in my body that remembers. And when we start turning into, the, the days start turning into these hazy, hot days, my anxiety starts to creep up. I get fearful. I get sharp with my family. I get angry. I, I revert to old Megan, old thought patterns, old coping mechanisms that I thought were gone. And I've been in counseling. I've been in therapy. And I've learned some tools. I know to be gentle with myself. I know to plan ahead. I know to, to rejoice in the love of God and go for walks. And I, and I know there are things that I can do to make this season easier for me. I know to call in friends and family. But I also need some good old-fashioned self-control so that I don't do damage, right? And so when I took this message on this day, there was something in me that knew that I needed the Holy Spirit to preach it to me first. I know, I knew how moralistic this topic could be. And just do it isn't going to cut it when we need self-control in the face of grief, in the face of pain. Right? Thankfully, though, this is our ninth fruit of the Spirit. And if you've been here, you've heard week after week that these characteristics don't develop because we try harder. No. The message of the gospel is that as we who belong to Christ abide in Christ, walk with Christ, the Holy Spirit develops these inside us. And I'm coming to believe more and more that these fruits of the Spirit are the characteristics of God made alive in us. We take them on as we walk with him. And as I was studying for this message, I did not find any ways in the Bible to become more self-controlled. What I found is a God who is self-controlled. 
and he eagerly shares this characteristic with his children. Today, I want to introduce you to the God who knows when to say enough. The God who knows when to say enough. I've been listening to the teachings of the Bema Institute, where the instructors discuss sort of the original context of the Bible. And I've drawn a lot of my understanding of this message from the first few episodes. Um, I highly rec them, recommend them, Bema Institute, if you want to go listen. And in it, the teacher quotes a rabbi, Rabbi David Foreman, talking about one of the names of God, El Shaddai. And the word El Shaddai has a really obscured meaning. Um, I actually, in studying, I've seen a lot of different possible translations for this word. But listen to this. Uh, most often, it's translated God Almighty. Rabbi David Foreman says that there are many rabbis throughout the ages that have looked at the consonants of the word Shaddai as representing words, like an acrostic, like we studied, if you remember, from the Psalms. If you were to take the con consonants of El Shaddai and turn them into a phrase, El Shaddai means the God who knows when to say enough. If you brought your Bibles with you, please open up to Genesis 1. We're actually going to be flipping around in these early chapters of Genesis, and I've got the, the main passages here on the screen for you, but they're really only a slim selection of what we could talk about on this topic. God is so self-controlled in these chapters. It's so beautiful. All right, Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Okay, I want to take this a little bit slowly, because my goal here is to read this passage looking at God's character. What can we see about him? How can we know him better through these verses? Okay, so in the beginning, that leaves the question right away, beginning of what? Right, Because it's obviously not the beginning of the earth. There is something there. There is something there. The earth is there, but it's without form and void. If you've listened to the Bible Project, those words might be familiar for, to you. There's some favorites. It's tohu vavohu. It's fun to say. Tohu vavohu. It's translated without form and void, but means like unordered, uninhabited, Marty Solomon of the Bama Institute um, uses, uses this funny image to describe it. He says, if you were to take nothing, a big bowl of nothing, and pour it in a blender, and put the blender on high, you would have tohu vavohu. It doesn't just mean nothing, it means like chaotic, 
unusable, uninhabitable nothing. And that's just the first image, because the second image is that there's darkness over the face of the deep. So the image now is, is, not, is dark, chaotic, churning, uninhabitable, deep water. In my mind, I think of like the waters off the coast of Alaska. If you've seen videos of those horrible storms, or I mean, honestly, the image in my mind is from the old movie um, Perfect Storm, where you see the immense wave and the boat that just can't survive in the face of that wave, except it's dark. And the Spirit of God is there, hovering over that chaotic, dark, uninhabitable nothingness. And he says, let there be light. He's hovering over those waters, not being tossed by the waves. He's not blowing the waves, creating more chaos. He's hovering over it, and what does he do? He illuminates it. He turns on the light, and it's not just any light, right? We can't think of light apart from the sun, apart from a light bulb. He turns on a light. He creates light, and it makes me think of the book of Revelation, where it says there's no need for the sun or moon or stars, that the Lord is the light. But it's different because this can be separated. It can be turned off. And he calls that light day. And the darkness he calls night. And it's good. And we see it's good because it works immediately. There was evening and there was morning. That first day. And as a creation narrative, this is really interesting to me. Because when I was a kid, if my mother had sent me into my tovu vabohu, my uninhabitable, chaotic bedroom, and I walked in the door, hovering maybe outside, and flipped on the light and said, huh, that was good. I'll be back tomorrow, it wouldn't have gone over well. Am I right? <laughs> but that's exactly, not exactly, that's not exactly what God did. But that's what God does. He stops, and he starts again the next day. He creates another realm. Day two, he separates, no, not that way. He separates the waters, right, with the atmosphere above, and now the waters are below, he calls what's above sky and below it is sea, and he pauses again. He calls it good. There's evening and there's morning the second day. Day three, he's separating again. This time he's pulling land out from the water, creating two more distinct realms, the sea and the land. But he doesn't stop there. Day three, he causes some greenery. He causes the flora to flourish on the land. And then he takes a break. There was evening and morning the third day. And then he spends days four, five, and six filling those domains that he made. Day four, right? He fills the light and the dark with the sun, moon, and stars. 
They determine time and season and pattern, and there's evening and morning, day four. Day five, he fills the sky with birds. He fills the sea with animals. And there's evening and morning, day five. Finally, on day six, God fills the land. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And then let us make man in our image, in our likeness. In, in the second narrative creation, chapter two, we have this image of God scooping up dust and breathing life into it, making human beings, men and women, who together look like him, made in his image. And then he looks around at all that he's made and says it was very good. There's evening and morning, the sixth day. Look at this beginning of chapter two. Thus, the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. He says it three times. Again, today we're talking about self-control. And I told you that I wanted to introduce you to the God who knows when to say enough. And my first observation is that our God knows when to say enough to work. And I think the danger with this narrative is that some of us have been in the church for so long that we forget to ask questions about it. We forget to, to look at it with wonder. We forget to interrogate it. Why does he pause and work? Our God does not need to rest. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. He has infinite power. He has infinite creativity. And yet, at the end of each day, he stops. And at the end of six days of work, he stops and rests. Why does he do that? Well, I think the first answer is in this chapter itself. At the end of each day, he says, it's good. It's good. Like every artisan, painter, chef, author. God knows when his work is complete. He knows when to step back and not apply another brushstroke to his canvas. He knows how to look at something and say, that's good, that part is done, and stop. Anything more would mess it up. It's finished. The other reason, it's probably more familiar to those of you who've been in the church for a while, and it has to do with the original audience, right? Who was this creation story written for originally? Do you guys know? Who was the first audience? The Israelites. The Israelite people who'd been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. The story was written to a people whose whole worth had been defined by what they were able to produce, by what they were able to do. They didn't know rest. They didn't know weekends. They didn't know identity apart from their work. And so God gave them this message 
And it was so important that he, he wrote Sabbath into his law. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. You guys, out of his love, God showed self-restraint in his own work so that he could teach his people to restrain their work, so that he could teach them that their worth was not in their productivity. And you guys, work is a good thing. It's a very good thing. Our work is a good thing, but good things done without restraint begin to control us. They can take over and they can begin to define our worth. And our worth will not be defined by what we do. Our worth is not defined by what we create. Our, Our worth was established that moment when God scooped up the dust and breathed into it, creating us in his image. Our God is a God who knows when to say enough to work. The next thing I want to show you in this passage is our God is a God who knows when to say enough to control. You remember how I I pointed out that God spent his first three days, the first three days of creation, separating domains, light from dark, sea from sky, land from sea, and then he spent his next three days filling those domains. Would you look at this, this slide? So day four, he fills the light and dark with the sun, moon, and stars, and then he gives the sun, moon, and stars a job. They're to rule the day and night, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and rule over the night to separate light from darkness. We've already established that we didn't need them for light, but he placed them there. And this ruling isn't just poetic imagery. Verse 14 says that they were to serve as signs for seasons, days, and years. They have a real job to do. Next day, day five, God fills the sky with birds and the sea with creatures of the sea, and then he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. Sea creatures fill the sea. Birds fill the air. They're given the ability to reproduce on their own. On the sixth day, God fills the land with living creatures. And although it doesn't actually say it in the Bible, we see that they do reproduce on their own. If you've ever seen rabbits, you know that. He's, our God is delegating power. He's giving up control. He's passing along the creativity, the power to make new life over to the things that he's made. <laughs> now, don't mistake me. Our God holds all things together by the power of his word, and he's still living and active in his creation. Amen. But he did make life on earth self-sustaining. He gave creation the ability to propagate, create new life according to its kind. And if knowing when to stop work is similar to being a painter who doesn't want to add another brush stroke to his painting, knowing when to hand over control is more like being an engineer. My father-in-law is an engineer, and he lives on his boats 
his boat in the summer. And one winter, he spent the whole winter designing a solar-powered system to run the energy on his boat so he wouldn't need to use the generator. And I don't think it was more cost-effective. I think it was for the joy of creating, right? And so he, he designs this system, puts it on the boat, gets it all plugged in. And you guys, if I thought he took joy in creating, there's even more joy when the system that he designed runs as he designed it to work. And he's still there if something goes wrong, if he needs to brush off the solar panels or I don't know what, new fuses or something. He's there and he's present, but he takes delight in seeing the thing that he's made work the way he designed it to work. But there's more. Would you look at verse 26 with me? Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You laugh. <laughs> so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let them have dominion, he says. Fill the earth and subdue it. And again, let them have dominion. God passes this like lordship this control over his creation to those that he made in his image. He's delegating power. He allows those whom he made in his image to act in his image out right from the very beginning out of love for us. He gave humans agency. He allowed humans to be creative reproducing participants in their environment. He allowed them to participate in their own flourishing and in the flourishing of the earth. And he did this because we're made in his image. Humans have the ability to say enough like God does. We have the ability to look at our environment around us and to discern what is good and right and beautiful, what would, what would make it flourish. And this is one way that we differ from animals. <laughs> um, this morning, while I was drinking my coffee, my dog gave a great illustration. He walked in the kitchen, and he's about counter height, and I saw him like get up a little bit on his hind legs looking at the butter dish. And you guys, he looked at me, and then plopped back down and came back and lay at my feet. I didn't have to say a thing, which number one is a win for my dog training because that has been hard. But number two, that's an illustration that Percy does not have self-control. He has owner control, right? We are not animals. Animals don't have this. And, and some, um, there's a quote from Marty Solomon here, he phrases it really strongly. He says, this is, this is the guy who runs the Bema Institute, the defining characteristic of what it means to be made in the image of God 
is that we are a people who know how to harness our creative powers and our desires just like the God who made us. The painter steps away. The engineer releases his work. Our God is a God who knows when to say enough to work. Our God is a God who knows when to say enough to control. And finally, our God is a God who knows when to say enough to condemnation. Let me read to you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say not to eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, no, no, we can eat of any tree except for that one in the middle. We're not even allowed to touch that one. And the serpent said, no, God knows that if you eat it, you'll become like him, knowing good from evil. And the woman saw that the fruit was good. It was delightful to look at. It was desirable to obtain wisdom. So she took the fruit and she ate it. And she gave some to Adam who was with her. And there's a lot we could look at in that passage, but I want you to see how Adam and Eve, when they were tempted to forsake their trust in God, also forsook their self-control. One of the characteristics that demonstrates they were made in God's image. They used the freedom, the agency, the authority that God had given to them to reject him. And now we see God in a new light, right? First we saw him as creator. We saw him as a God who knows when to rest. We saw him as a God who shares his power, a God who delights in what he's made. He's God who walks in the garden with his children. But now we see God as the judge. Read this with me. Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And in this passage again, I want you to observe God's character. He doesn't lead, he doesn't berate them. He doesn't launch right into punishment or the curse. He leads with questions. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? What have you done? And then we see him declaring the consequences. And we can't minimize this. All of us live in this world and we feel the consequences. But again, I don't want us to be so familiar with this story that we miss the particulars of God's character 
Again, in this, in this case, his restraint. Next slide. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Guys, humans were still able to reproduce after their own kind. We are still able to be like God in that we can make little beings in our own image. Now, though, instead of being an exclusively joyful, very good experience, there's pain. And there's conflict among the co-creators. Next slide. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the, wife, the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Humans are still able to exercise dominion over the earth. God did not take away the authority that he had given. Now the ground is cursed, and there is struggle, and there is toil. It is not all artistic creativity. It isn't all flourishing. But again, he didn't remove that which he'd given. In this passage, too, Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness. It's almost as if they're trying to reassert that they're not animals, right? Animals run around naked and unashamed all the time. And it's just now that Adam and Eve don't want to be naked. It's now, well, and the Lord God meets them there too. He made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God didn't say, I made you this way. Suffer through it. He doesn't add to their shame. Instead, in his deep kindness, he clothes them. And then the final consequence. God sends them away from the garden. He says, behold, the man's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore, God, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And that, you guys, that could be it. That could be the end of the story. Adam and Eve banished from the garden, no longer able to walk with God. Like we, heard it, we hear it say often that, that sin is separation from God. And that's what this could have been. It could have been permanent separation from God, except... We are only this far in the Bible. If you look at the next chapter, the very next chapter, we see Eve rejoicing in conceiving with the help of the Lord. We see God interacting with that son made in Eve's own image, begging him not to sin. Keep, if you keep turning the pages, you see God pursuing his people. He calls Abram out of Ur. He, he goes with the Hebrews into Egypt in captivity. He goes with them again into the wilderness. He goes with them again into the promised land. He even goes with them into exile. 
And ultimately, we see him coming down and taking on the form of a human to bear our condemnation. Our God is a God who knows when to say enough. He knows when to say enough to work. He knows when to say enough to control. And he knows when to say enough to condemnation. So what is our response? Some of us in this room desperately need self-control. We are slaves to sin. We are addicts. We have unhealthy coping mechanisms. We're, We're subject to our passions, controlled by fear. And we need the Spirit to enable us to say enough, I am made in God's image. And I think the thing to do is to start back at the beginning in Genesis 1. Kyle, would you mind coming to play? I'd love for you guys to sit with me a moment and let God illuminate your tovu vavohu, the chaoticness that lives in the wilderness of our souls, the places that we don't have access to because we don't often sit and let the Spirit stir things up. And you close your eyes and let the Spirit speak to you. Where have you been searching for identity? In your work? In your hobbies, your sexuality? Where have you been seeking things that are good and beautiful in moderation, but you want more and more until they're no longer good? Where have you been grasping for control over people or over situations? Where have you been angry, resentful, fearful, letting it dominate your days? Where have your passions taken over? Where do you need the God who knows when to say enough to grow self-control in you? The good news is that the God who knows when to say enough to work empowers us not only to release our work and not be defined by it, but he empowers us to release all good things so they don't take over us. 
And the God who knows when to say enough to control empowers us to release our own controlling behaviors so we can let the people around us thrive. The God who knows when to say enough to condemnation. The God who's not controlled by his own rejection, who's not controlled by his own anger, empowers us to restrain our passions. And ask the Lord now or later, do I need more support in these areas? Do I need a friend, a pastor, a counselor? I know our church would love to help you to facilitate finding community and support for the things that control you. And maybe some of you, maybe the Lord's calling you to some spiritual practices. Um, I don't need to put them on the board. Sabbath, fasting, fasting food. Abstinence is, is the act of fasting anything other than food, sex, phones, media. Temperance is a historical practice of lim putting limits on things that are prone to control us. Maybe the Lord's calling you to implement some spiritual practices. Any of these can become legalistic, but any of them can be life-giving and cause flourishing. The real difference is your heart open to the Holy Spirit and the community around you. We're going to sing a song together, responding in worship to our God, this God who knows when to say enough. After the first song, we're going to take communion together, so feel free to come up and take the elements that you need for your community. But let me pray for us. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who knows when to stop. Lord, I pray that as you grow in us these fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Lord, draw us to you. Draw us to you in our failures. Draw us to you in our triumphs. Draw us to you in your beauty. Thank you for your sacrificial love. Thank you for the way that you have loved your creation, those of us, that you, all of us that you've made in your image. Lord, guide us away from attempts to just do it, to fix things on our own. And continue to draw us to yourself, I pray. Amen.